welcome to another episode of the Gaming Moguls Podcast. The only podcast where the average year of release for the games we're talking about tonight is 2009. I'm your host for the evening, Mark Teske, along with my co-host, the always pleasurable Jake Kloppenstein. Jake, how are you doing tonight? I'm always pleasurable. I'm, I'm, how could I not be great if I'm always pleasurable? 2009. Did you run the math? I did the math. On all of ours, including mine, too? All the ones we have highlighted. Yeah, you're that's that's like we had a long conversation before this that was somewhat intense and focused. I'm surprised you had the uh, time to to do the math. Yeah, well, you know, I was as I was writing this out, I'm thinking, man, we're talking about some crusty games tonight. And (laughs) this has got to be you are. I'm I'm the man of the the hot new three of the games that I might talk about. We might not talk about all of them, but three of the ones that I've highlighted is from 2021 releases. The newest game I have on my list to talk about is 2015. Did we swap? Is this different? Do we go back to, are you, are you going to be the angry person talking about like plastic minis and I'm going to be the enthusiastic one? I'm, I'm down for this role swap. How many things are you going to persuade me to kickstart tonight? Oh, so many. <laughs> I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think what, what my role should actually be. After I have all the counterpoints, we'll just switch all of our tremendous arguments that we've had for years and years. And, uh, I'll, I'll just have to switch those other sides. I will say though, kind of been on a, uh, hiatus from buying anything released in 2021 and especially 2020 and uh saw something tonight that i think is gonna push me off that fence oh yeah what's that scout i know but no it's no longer scout exclamation point it's It's just scout scout it's scout scout Scout. we just saw this on twitter right before we started recording our favorite publisher yeah it's favorite yeah it's probably favorite i don't know definitely in terms of number of games by them i certainly win by that Totally. They're reprinting the lovely game Scout, which I don't know who printed it before, but Oink is reprinting it now with a lovely, it appears to be a clown theme. A circus theme of some sort. I'm not sure how you scouted a circus, but you know, whatever. It looks cool. You have suddenly been appointed as the leader of the circus. Using members of your circus, you must put together a show that will beat your rivals. Hmm. I don't know how they see that. I can see where that theme would. Yeah, I can see that. They're just numbers. Well, they are, but that's the show. I so mean, maybe the they question. put like an elephant and a tiger and a clown and a tightrope act on the cards and stuff like that. So that's the show you're putting together. Right. Is there any question that you will not buy? Oh, <laughs> no. So, I mean, Scout, you've heard us talk about this in the past. It's it's truly a delightful little card game. It's available only in Japan right now uh, by import and unreasonably expensive. So the fact that Oink is going to come make an even smaller box with great art and actually sell it in the u.s is just it's a win for everybody this is a game that everybody should play it's very good it's it's great for the hobby that it's actually coming and the box on it oh it doesn't say the usually says the language on the back maybe it says it on the bottom so i'm trying to see if it was japanese and uh, english was just english i mean the game itself is fully language independent really it's right it's a card game with numbers on it i was just trying to deduce where it's being released by that Oh, I saw in the in the tweet you posted earlier tonight or responded to, it actually said uh, European release in 2021, U.S. release, North American release in 2022. Well, thank gosh you read that because I didn't. I was just, just sent you the photo and said, this is good. I've I've done I've done my job. Well, that's sweet. It's awesome. Yeah, man. They're hooking us up. I'm excited to do it. I loved circus pizza when I was a kid. And now I just love uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> circus circus out in Las Vegas last week no. when you were out there. Yeah, that's the saddest. That's the saddest one in Las Vegas. That's the saddest hotel that you can actually stay at. It was funny. I almost wanted to go there just because when I was in Las Vegas, we like to collect the poker chips because 18xx and I like to 
I like poker chips now because I'm a weirdo who likes train games. And uh, I wanted to go to the Circus Circus one and try it out. But two of the lights were off on the big light on the side of the building. And that just doesn't. That's not a good harbinger for what, what it's going to be like if you go there. So it's like Urca's Circa? It was like c- Circa. Uh, I don't know. It was bad. I th- the, the I and the R was out on each one. So <laughs> it's it's not good. I apologize to all the avid circus, circus Vegas fans in, a, in our listening population because we've been so rude to them. Let's talk about games, man. I think that's a great transition. That wasn't a transition at all. But let's talk about games. <laughs> Jake, did you take any pictures when you were in Las Vegas? How was that for a on-the-nose cheesy that transition? Is, that is very good. I took two. Anna's the uh, photo taker in our relationship, and it shows if you follow me on Instagram. I got a picture of my dog and like stuff I've done, but no, it's, it was awful. But there's a game that I was also about taking photos that we are quite enamored with right now called Wind the Film. A good enough exclamation point at the end there. Wind the Film! I'll do it again. I'm sorry. Yeah, Wind the Film by Sashi. And it's published by Sashi and Sashi. This game is, I think I'm going to say it. I think I'm enamored with it. It's really cool. It's really cool. This was a Christmas present from your boy over to his, his favorite podcast co-host. Correct. And yeah, my, my uh, Sashi and Sashi collection grows stronger and stronger by the day. And uh, my hipster cred grows stronger and stronger as well. <laughs> so what you're doing in Wine the Film is it's much like the other Sashi releases that are in the small box game um, kind of category where it's just a bunch of cards. Um, you are, I think thematically, you're people who are taking a bunch of photos, but for whatever reason, your camera roll got like mixed up. And so you're trying to like put them in the right spot and put, get all your photos together. I guess I'm trying to think of a real world example of what would happen, but in the game, um, there's a bunch of cards that are a bunch of different suits and they number from one to 12, one to 14, one to 12 on them. And on your turn, you're gonna be able to draw some of these cards based on the grid pattern that's put out there, place them in your hand, and then adjust your hand, and then you have to play some cards as well. But what's really cool about this game is it has that really fun mechanism that is just so cool, and I don't know why it's not more present, the you-cannot-rearrange-your-hand mechanism. And it is so fun. Well, straight out of Scout, and then, you know, further back from that, Bonanza. Bonanza, correct. But there's something about Sashi where all of his games, it's like... The, a good equivalent would be like understanding that there's a new color that you've actually never seen before. It's yeah. like, it yeah. makes sense. You know what a color is. You've seen a lot of stuff, but the way that it's all put together and, and Sasha does such a great job of this, where it's just like, it's so such a fresh take on something you thought you knew. Sure. And you have this weird, almost like a, I don't know, solitaire layout where you've got some cards that are just laid out there, some face up, some face down, and you can only draw a certain number of cards from one end or the other. See, if you're going to take three cards, you take all the cards from one end. Then you add those to the back of your hand. Then you can move one card as far forward in your hand as you would like. And then you play an equivalent number of cards that you drew from the front of your hand out to your tableau. And as you build your tableau, you... I think it's the other way around, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. You actually put them at the front and then you play off yeah. the back, right? You right, because when forward. you wind the yep, film, yep, yep, you, yep, yep. You, you, you push them back in time. They're not played. And you sort the cards out by color and you have to either go continuously ascending or descending, staying in the color, and they have to be within three picture, you know, three numbers of the one before, you know, like you're advancing the film, but you can't advance it too far. If you manage to meet those things, you can keep progressing on it. If you have to play a card that causes you to screw up, you flip one over and you lose some points. If you get up to three in a row or whatever, you get a good shot. 
bonus card, which is worth a bunch of points at the end. Yeah. And it's hard. I mean, this this one hurts your brain to play for such an easy game. It really does. And it sounds complicated. And I will say it's slightly more complicated than it's I'm not gonna probably, say should be, but it's 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 more complicated than you probably think it would be. But it is understandable. You get it after a play and it's pretty, pretty hard little puzzle. You know, it's got that same kind of feeling to um, not Metro X, but maybe um, like PAX um, Premier, where it's kind of like. Yeah, it seems hard, but actually what you're doing is pretty easy. It's the why of what you're doing that's really hard. Yeah. And what you can actually accomplish by doing that. But it's it's super cool. And and we've been playing this as kind of our filler game for the last while. And man, I, I really like it. There's kind of a uh, push your luck risk reward aspect of it, too, that we've never really talked about. Because you can draw one card and just take one off of there and play one out, which is super safe. You're never going to, you know, you can really pick the card you absolutely want and get your hand ordered really nicely. But you're just not going to have enough turns to really play them out to get score any meaningful points because it's got the like the, you know, exponential point scoring, depending on how many you get Mm -hmm. out of each color. You know, you can really go for it and take three cards, but your odds of getting stuff out of order and losing points for having bad shots goes up (laughs) dramatically as well. So there's a cool risk reward payback in there, too, that how do you manage the okay? I'm going to take a bunch of cards here so I can lay a bunch of cards and, you know, score a lot of points. Right hit that when the opportunity presents itself and try not to do it when it ends up hosing you over. The final smart thing I'll bring up to this that, that I really like too, is it, so every suit has one through 12 in it, but some cards are placed face down. Some cards are placed face up in that tableau that you actually draw from to be able to play them out. But the backsides of the cards indicate what suit they are. And they also indicate whether it's a seven through a 12 or a one through a six. So you can kind of also with that push your luck mechanism that you just mentioned, Mark, kind of be smart. And it also does that amazing thing that I think is a huge reason I like Arboretum, where you can look down at the table and feel really smart by figuring out what card that is. You know, it's almost like Clue where you're like, yeah, 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 okay. It's a seven through 12 and I've seen the other six cards that are in that bunch or the other five cards. So that has to be an eight. Correct. Plus, I secretly have one and I know that Mark took this. And so what is he thinking? Was he happy when he took it? Was he sad? I, I, I love, love when you can figure out where all the cards are in a game. That's so fun. The final thing I love about it is there's probably about seven different suits in there, maybe seven different colors. Each color is themed differently. So like the yellow is all about taking pictures at a coffee shop. And, you know, the blue is taking pictures of abstract yep. architecture. The, the green is like selfies and every, every different color has a specific theme. And as you arrange them out on the table, you kind of see this film strip that tells mm-hmm. a story. And I think that's super, super cute. Super similar to, um, what's the one, the one where you're doing the uh, Lost Cities, where it's just like, you kind of feel like yeah. you're progressing yeah, enough where it's like a little, mm-hmm. little quest. But this art has that same, I think it's like wood, wood block, wood, wood cut art, where it kind of looks like stamps that were filled in. It's that, it's that very distinct sure. um, Sashi art style that he's been doing for a while. He or she. Actually, I don't know if it's a guy or a girl, but I have no idea. Neither do I. I don't know Japanese names very well. So um, anyway, it's a wonderful game. Big fan of pretty much their work. And uh, I, I think this is one of the few games that we give like just the moguls big thumbs up. Being moguls and rating things, we have to give this a mogul scale rating. Mm-hmm. I have opinions on this. I feel like it's one of the games where the number might slightly be higher than the letter. But calling it a 2A feels wrong. Yeah, because it's thinkier than that. And calling it a 3B feels wrong. It's like a 2.5B. Okay, yeah. I, I, 
I, I'll go with that. I was going to say 2B. 3 seems too hard. 1 seems too easy. But, you know, 2.5B, sure. It's, it's, it's in not, reality, it's probably a 2B, but. Right. Yeah. It's not eloquent, but the first time you play, it's a little clunky. But then once you get the clunkiness figured out. I don't know that it's clunky. I think it's weird. Right? Yeah. I mean, right, we, right, right. we had a conversation last episode about how sometimes games play difficult because that you don't have a frame of reference on how to play it. It, you know, like this isn't a trick taking game. No. So you don't have a frame of reference and what to do. So it's like, wait, what do I do next? I don't, you know, I don't automatically know that I, okay, I play cards till I'm out of my hand and then I refill my hand. You know, it's not, there's no easily transferable information from other games you've played that help you with this. So I don't think it's clunky. I just think it's weird. Yeah. And so I guess maybe, maybe that influences and maybe you're just like a brand new gamer where all of these mechanisms are so weird. Why in the film would be just fine. Maybe it's just a 2B. I think that's probably where it plays out. And by the way, just, uh, you know, been a minute since we've explained what uh, the mogul scale is. And at very high level, it's a number and a letter. The number explains about, you know, is, is a one through five on what you can do. And the numbers A through E are the what you should do. So it's kind of rules versus strategy. So a five E has a lot of things you can do and a lot of things you should do, whereas a one A doesn't have many of either. Absolutely. Cool. And it doesn't mean the quality of the game is just kind of a, a way nope. to how, uh, compl- how complex it is. Exactly. So anyway, that is why the film by Sashi, by published by Sashi and Sashi, published in 2016. Mr. Teske, you've been playing some. I am going to talk about a card game, too, and I'm going to start the train of ancient stuff a rolling here, a rolling all the way to the city of St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg, a market and tableau building game by Bernd Brunhofer, published by Hans M. Gluck in 2004. Just the fact that I'm referencing Hans M. Gluck tells you this is an old game. This is so German. This is just the most <laughs> German thing that's ever <laughs> the happened. Most German game ever. Just na- game named after city. <laughs> like, I know. Just like, it's a pretty place. Cool. We're going to make a game about it. With some random Renaissance guy, you know, like Peter the Great on the front. Does this qualify for places Mark's been plus games? I have never been to St. Petersburg. Well, frick, I'm going to buy it from you because I've been to St. Petersburg. So <sighs> you need to buy your own copy because this game is fantastic. Why do, why, why do you like it so much? I've already played this game like eight times or something like that. So devoted listeners, we talked about this game actually a couple an episode or two ago about how I had played it online and really thought it was cool, but didn't really get the flavor for it online. Like I could see the potential, but it was just missing the interaction when playing online. So I'm like, you know, I'd really like to get a copy of this one. Darn if our good buddy Brent didn't come swinging for the fences on this one and just goes, well, I have a copy if you're interested. And so Brent uh, just shows up with a copy of St. Petersburg one night, and now I'm a proud owner of a copy of this 2004 gem. Is this the same guy who gave me a copy of Raw and I just completely forgot that we had traded for like a year and a half ago? (laughs) (laughs) That was beautiful. Hey, Brent, you going to bring my copy of St. Petersburg tonight? Yeah, and I'm bringing Jake's copy of Raw. Hey, Jake, he's bringing your copy of Raw. What? What? I, we, we had traded a game for it and I completely <laughs> just forgot about it. He could have pulled the wool over my eyes. I wonder how many people take advantage of my forgetfulness in regards to games that people owe me, I guess. Classic. As I mentioned, St. Petersburg is a, is a game that is a really it's a tableau builder that by building your tableau, you're going to earn both money and victory points. And you use your money to buy cards out of the market. Right. I mean, think very, very, very simple version of Pax Premier okay. you know, or any of the Pax games. Right. There's actually four different phases of a turn and the type you can buy any card on the market during there, but the phase tells about what type of card gets populated and what type of card scores. So like the first phase is the worker phase and the workers just give you money. 
And so you can buy worker cards and put them out in your Tableau. And once everybody's passed, then all your worker cards pay you, you know, the three rubles or whatever times, however many of them you have. So you just, you buy those cards and then they, during the scoring phase, they pay you. The next phase is the building phase. Then you use your money to buy buildings and the buildings pay you victory points. So if you have a high victory point building early on, well, you're going to score that thing seven to 10 times. So it's going to give you a lot of points over the course of the game. Right. But it also might eat up your money and money's really stingy in this game. So if you are out of money, it's really hard to keep developing your tableau. The third phase is the aristocrat phase, where in the aristocrat phase, you're buying out these aristocrats, which, again, uh, typically give you money. They're not quite as good of a deal as the worker phase, but they score exponentially at the end of the game. So if you've got seven different aristocrats, that might pay you 30 points at the end of the game. If you've got eight different aristocrats, it might be 40 different points, and it starts going up really dramatically. Very cool. And then finally, the fourth phase is the upgrade phase. There's no scoring at the end of that one, but there are better versions of the buildings, workers, and aristocrats that you already have. So you can basically replace a lumberjack with a sawmill, which not only pays you some money during the scoring phase of the workers, but it also pays you some points also. Mm. And you pay like the difference between the two cards to upgrade it. So you, you definitely want to do upgrade cards if you can. There's four different first player tokens. There's one for each of those phases. And whoever has that particular token goes first in that phase, which is just a super neat mechanism. So every time at the end of a turn, you pass the tokens one to the left. So now I'm going to be the first guy to go in the aristocrat phase. Game goes until uh, one of the card decks is out. And then it basically comes down to, do you have any cards that have end game scoring conditions in it? And then what's your set of aristocrats on top of the points you've already earned? And then you know, a few extra points for having a lot of money. And that's how you play. It plays one to four players, and the whole experience is done in typically about 45 minutes. Ooh, nice. Oh, this game is so much fun, Jake. I mean, we we literally played it twice in a row the first time we played it. And I think every time we pulled it out, we played it two quick rounds back to back. And I, I've seen some stunning come from behind victories. I've seen some interesting mach- money machines. I've seen multiple way- paths to victory. And this game's really a gem, and I'm, I'm super happy I have it. And I really would like you to try it. So I often say that I'd like to play games and there's sometimes that are more truthful and less truthful. I very much want to try St. Petersburg in a very truthful way. I think it's definitely up my alley. Well, yeah, you, you love you a tableau builder. I also love old um, Euro games. So there's been a lot of like internal monologues I've been having. And one of them is that old games are just better. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) I'm not going to argue with that on that point for sure. For a lot of reasons, I think it's 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 a bit of the hipster, like they sold out kind of thing. But I think there's a lot of market pressures changing Euro games right now to become kind of bland. And just hearing that a Euro game is a big box game that plays in under 45 minutes to under an hour is just so, so nice. You know, I feel like I exactly know what a Euro game is going to be when I open up the box and it's a big box game and it's an hour to two hours, pretty much guaranteed. And it's just nice to have a game say, you know what? No, St. Petersburg is St. Petersburg. We don't need to do anything else with it. We don't need to make it longer. It's not going to be like these other games. It is St. Petersburg. And that's, well, it's cool. And I just taught you the entire game. I mean, I'm sure I can. Yeah. I mean, I'm a very visual learner. It's a very quick setup and a very quick teach, even having never played it before. Gotcha. So totally a gem. I'm I'm a bit surprised. I don't know. I don't know why Bern Brunhofer or Hansom Gluck haven't had this reprinted anytime in the near future. But uh, as companies are more and more, like we've seen a renaissance of classic old Euros getting reprinted. Ginkopolis finally getting a reprint. Yep. 
uh, Hansa Teutonica getting reprint. And, uh, you know, hey, kids, this would be a good one. <laughs> Make it happen. Gotcha. I also have both expansions in the box as well. So I scored huge. That's the other problem with collecting old games is a lot of times the, mm. uh, you know, you can get the game, but you can't get the expansions ever. And again, Brent swinging for the fences. Right. If you get the wrong edition and then the expansions are like the wrong edition for the game that you have. Right. That's like, so. right. Well, cool. Yeah, I'm, ex- so. I'm excited to try this one. I, li- I, th- I think I'm going to like it a lot. So that's St. Petersburg by Bernd Brunhofer, published by Hans M. Gluck, 2004. Gosh, I haven't had to say 20 instead of 2000 at the beginning of a number in a long time. <laughs> I was 11 when this game came out. We're going to give this a 2C on the mogul scale. This one punches above its weight. Cool. We also played Import and Export by Jordan Draper <laughs> and published by Jordan Draper Games um, the other day. I'm actually really happy. So what did you think about this game when we, when we sat down? Like, like, like usually when we do a Kickstarter together, there's a long dialogue about it. Like, are you going to kickstart it? Is it worth your time? Is it worth the money? Do you want to buy this game? Do you research it? Did you do any researching for import export before you bought it? Probably not as much as I should have. Cause I have a copy of glory to Rome. More on that later. Me too. The only thing I knew about this game is people said it is glory to Rome, but with a different theme. And I said, you know what? Sure. That's all I need. That's all I needed. And quite honestly, I'm pretty happy I didn't research this a bunch because it, I came in with no expectations. I didn't think about this game had to be. I was like, if it's similar to GTR, that's pretty cool. If it's not, it's not. There was a buzz around it, right? I mean, there was there was stories about how it's hard to get. And I just knew it was like, oh, it's one of those games everybody likes and it's hard to get. So therefore, I should probably kickstart it. Yeah, me too. And we've been burned by that so many times. So this was originally published in 2017, <laughs> but there was... A new Kickstarter, I can't remember when it was, when it was, because time doesn't matter anymore, and we're just drifting. Regardless of when it was Kickstarted, it uh, it actually delivered eh, earlier this year, right? I have no idea, Mark. I think it was late last year, perhaps. I don't remember for sure. Either. I don't know. I just don't know when things happened anymore, and it's stressful for me. But what you're doing in, in uh, import-export is we're different importers and exporters that are using these cards, which are multi-use, which is a thing we really, 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 really like, that are both actions, they are both goods, they're also containers, and they're also contracts that get you special powers. It's pretty simple. It's very similar to Glory to Rome, where on your turn you play a card, people may follow, and then you do that action to the strength, depending on the number of workers that you have. They're called crew in this game. I can't remember what they're called in Glory to Rome. Plus your action card that you played, you do the stuff, you kind of move cards around and your whole goal is to get the most victory points by putting cards kind of in your tucked away area. I can't remember what it's called in Glory to Rome, but in this one, it's called your goods. What'd you think of it? So a little background. I've, I've been meaning to pull this out for a while too, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, it's been sitting on the shelf and just last night I was, or night before last, I was looking at it there and I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to buck up and learn to play this thing. We're playing it Wednesday. We're going to do this. And it plays a whole bunch of people too, right? It plays six and figured that was something that we could probably get to the table and try out. So started reading the rule book. And as I'm diving into it, I'm kind of going, oh my God, this is directly stolen from glory to Rome. That is okay. That's exactly that. That's exactly that. That's exactly that. So what I did is I kind of stopped reading the rule book. I kind of just started skimming it and yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of, that's analogous to right. that in glory to Rome. And yeah, that's analogous. The problem is, is I somehow missed everything about it that was different from glory to Rome. Well, I think this was so, during the busy time when you texted me saying it's so similar. Right. And I was like, cool. We're playing this Wednesday. Heck yeah. I don't need to read my copy. Mark's got it <laughs> locked down. So smash cut to us uh, figuring out what game we're going to play. 
I could tell people were kind of just kind of going, okay. And and instantly everybody went, oh God, Mark, here's another one of those weird games you're making us play. And I'm like, no, man, this is Jake. Jake's doing this one. I am just a man who <laughs> goes with the flow. I'm a, I'm a flow guy. I, people did not even think that it was my, my choosing. It was all you. I got none of the blame. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I did what I normally do. I threw you under the bus and went on to teach the game. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it's nice under the bus. Because of the fact that I realized pretty quickly that there was a few key differences between Glory to Rome and Import-Export that I really hadn't paid attention to, my teach went probably south of where it normally went, and I could see eyes glazing over because half the table had played Glory to Rome, the other half had not. Mm. And the people that had not did not get it. Well, I think the rulebooks was also, you, you, you taught from the rulebook, which is something we rarely do. We usually- For sure use the rulebook as a reference, but I jump around all the time because there's good ways to teach games. And for me, I don't always think rulebooks are presented in the right way to teach a game orally to a group of people. No, no, no. And that's that definitely in hindsight, having played it right now, I would absolutely teach it a hundred percent different. I'd teach it in pretty much the exact same way I teach glory to Rome, but with, mm-hmm. you know, the particular twists for this game. So, you know, as we started the game and got rolling on it, I pretty much understood what was going on, but there still were multiple people at the game that they didn't even know what to play. And repeating the same thing multiple times, um, re-explaining the things multiple times. And, you know, by the end of about round two, I was really close to just saying, should we just pack this one up? I was too. <laughs> but because I understood it. I figured it out. It was quick. And, mm-hmm. and and I can go over the actions off the top of my head real quick. We'll do that in a bit. But it wasn't that hard, but it was it was a slog. And I don't know what's happened, but like games feel harder now. I think it's because I'm not playing as often, but that coupled with it just not being presented. But that being said, you still haven't said what you think about the game because you're talking about the experience that we had. I really (laughs) enjoyed it. I'm just going to spoil it here. I did too, actually. Once, Once I got the idea of it, I thought it was fun. This game's actually stuck with me a lot. Why don't we just explain what the five actions are real quick? Just top level. The top first one is... Supply. So what you do with supplies, you either sell a card from your hand, you have a hand of usually of around five cards. You can get a card from the middle. There's this little middle island area that you can add it to your your crew, and then your crew is more actions because every card is one of the more, five more actions. Follow actions yeah. Correct. So you can do things better. The next one is import, which is where you actually do an auction for people's boats also have cards attached to them. And if you buy the ones on the boats, you can then add them to your um, goods area. You're buying the goods. Your goods and your crew that are basically right. scoring at the end of the game and allowing you to take additional right. follow actions. And it's it's got the Euro game. Everything's kind of worth a lot of things. And if you get one of everything, that's good. But there's also this concept of illegal goods, which if you're the person with the most of them, you lose points, you lose six points instead of being the most. Because usually if you have the most of a good, it's like, six points benefit on top of the fact that each one of those goods you have is like one to two points usually. So yep. the next action is um, contract contract, which is where you take these cards that are in your hand and you put them on the ship. And what that does is it just, you you can kind of fill them with the next action load. And once you get a certain number of them on that ship of the cards that match the same color, that card pops to the top and it becomes a special power. And much like glory to Rome, they're pretty degenerate powers. It's analogous to the architect or builder action in Glory to Rome. They're where you're starting the foundation of a building. Correct. And they are degenerate, degenerate powers, you know, like just completely break the game. Just if you're dr- if you're drinking tea, you get money, you know, like weird stuff. I don't know if that one's real or not. We have some gripes that we'll hit in a bit. The other action <laughs> being low, that's pretty self-explanatory. If you have it in your hand, you can 
tuck more cards under these um, contracts. And then once you get them, they kind of pop out. And the final action is piracy, which is a, the same thing as load, but instead you're stealing containers that exist out in the market. There's a bunch of more little things that exist there. But the coolest part about this game is all these cards have a myriad different uses, but there's like an economy for the cards. So let's say at this example, I play a card and do an action. So then I take this card and I make it an, a load action and I put it under some special power. So then when that gets pulled out and I finish that special power, that card that I then played to fill that is then available for other people to either pirate or import slash export. But you also can control where they go and there's some incentive to clearing off your own boats through the import. And there's also some fun things in regards to all these things. But then that card may get to someone else's container and keep on doing this whole lifestyle. And it's just the economy of how the cards flow is so cool. Yeah, you have two boats and uh, those boats can either be in your harbor or they can be out in the open sea. If they're in the open sea, they have some containers on them and people can either import those containers or they can pirate them. You have to have a boat in the harbor, though, in order to be able to fill a contract in order to get these crazy special powers. And oh, also, by the way, filling contract increases your capacity for being able to store crew, which gives you additional follow actions and goods, which is an endgame scoring thing. So you you know, a big cornerstone of the game is you want to fill these contracts as quickly as possible to get degenerate abilities and a larger crew as quickly right. as possible. Right. But the issue is with these games is there's these rules and flavor text and stuff on these cards. But where a card is 99% of the time, it just matters what color it is when it's on the table. If it's in your hand, it matters what the special powers do. But once it's on the table, because it can possibly become a contract, which has correct. an ability. But a lot of the game is spent because you're like looking at this, you're like, oh my God, that power is sweet. How do I get that? And then you're like racking your brain going through all the five different actions. Like there is no possible way for me to get that card into my end until it comes back out and does something in the discard pile. Yeah, it has to go into the discard pile, get reshuffled into the deck and then dealt back to you in order for you to right. possibly become something you could make into an action. Right. So this game becomes a bit of like, holy crap, there's so much information out there and you have to intentionally ignore certain things to make it work. But man, I thought this game was really, 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 really cool. Really liked it. It keeps coming with me. We played this last night and we kind of left it saying that was not a good experience. We played it in two hours, excluding teach. The teach was probably 30 minutes. Yep. Yeah. Which it shouldn't have been. It could have been like a 20 minute teach. No big deal. Not being mad at you or anything. There's 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 no ill ill, Ill will here. We occasionally all have uh, bad teaches, but this game could easily be an hour and a half if you teach it well with six players. No questions asked. Yeah, and it was a very fumbly, awkward play where lots of questions, lots of rollbacks, lots of, oh, I didn't understand that. You know? Right. So it was an awkward play. So let's talk the bads, though. I don't think all of the issues are your fault, though. Yeah, I would. Well, of course they weren't. None of them were. <laughs> Come um, on. They, they weren't all related to teach is probably a better way to put it. It's really jargony in a very similar way to that like Pax Transhumanity is where like you kind of are saying all these words and then you kind of hear yourself vocalizing this and you're like, what the hell did I even say? Are we allowed to say hell on this podcast? I think you just did. Where, where you're just spewing these words that kind of don't make sense, but you get them enough like it's like that you can teach versus you can do. Right. And I found this was the case when I was taking like chemistry classes that were probably too hard for me. Where I'd be like looking and saying what I said. I was like, I don't even know what I just said. Right. It's like well, buzzword oh, bingo. Yes. Yeah, so you're doing the import so that you can then bring the goods, but the goods are containers, but not always. But you can also as your crew. It's like, I understand that this theme works for this loosely, 
You can also just say the word card. That's totally kosher. That's fine. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I've I've assisted some friends with uh, some game design things, and I've actually pushed that point where, you know, rather than saying your jargon word for what you're, what you're doing in your game, say jargon word card. Yes. You should murder an opponent. No, say play the murder card on your opponent. Right. Because things might get lost and you might be culpable for <laughs> encouraging someone right. to, to shoot somebody. For an abstract example, it's not actually what it was. Oh, but gotcha, gotcha. R- rather than just always referring everything by their thematic buzzword, always relate them back to what game piece that thing actually is. Exactly. That totally makes sense. And I think that could have been done a lot better here just to make it work. And especially the other thing is all those rules existing or pardon me, all these this information on the card, they can just ignore and so it's like almost like they should these games should come with like little covers that you like hide every bit of the card aside from the part that's up. That matters. I actually have mixed feelings about that because the cards were really cool looking. They were really cool looking. They're really cool looking. They're all containers, right? And they're all like weird things like, hey, on my ship right now, I currently have AR-15s, cannabis, Muay Thai boxing shorts, and... And a Rolls Royce. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and, and then and the containers would somehow be subtly decorated. Like I had a sauna in one and there was like a little trickle of sweat coming out of the corner of it. Just this subtle little and very cool you know, little little shiny bit of sweat coming off of it done in like UV ink. Correct. And I haven't seen UV ink on cards before and it is exquisite. Oh, it's, it was so beautiful. I kept looking at them and the reflection in the light just to see what kind of little weird Easter egg was on that card. Completely they were so agree. beautiful. Completely agree. The one big complaint I had, and this was honestly my only confusion about the game, and it made me question things, which I think then made the the general aura of confusion a little more prevalent amongst the table, was sure. there's these dots. And this is, I don't believe, present in Glory to Rome. No, they are not. So depending on what one of those contracts can put down, which are these cards they can then play for to get the special power, you have to meet a certain threshold for some of the cards. And so there's these open spots to indicate how many goods you need to have to be able to place that one that range from like zero to three. Some have four. But what's weird is they give negative like 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 it's like a hole punch like or like a Scantron test where you, they're actually like open ovals that are then filled in with the color of the card. If you need to meet them, they're like showing the total range or gauge or something. I'm having kind of a tough time vocalizing it but it's like a scantron they have to fill in right and if it's three the three top bubbles are filled in but a lot of times they're zero it's really there to basically prevent you from playing one of these contracts which would allow you to get a really degenerate ability too early in the game it has huge implications in the game i'm not saying it should be removed but then there's these it's, it's it's a good thing for the game i think it's the right decision to have it but then there's these cards that are two different suits which i don't also think is not in glory to rome nope and they can be loaded, which is where you actually tuck them underneath those special powers to make the special powers get played, but they have a fee for them. So then we they have special powers and everything, but they do not have those empty Scantron dots. And so it's confusing to know if they can be played for the contract or not, which then just confused the absolute heck out of me because some of the powers on them were really weird. Quite literally, one of them was when you accomplish this this contract um, and the special power comes out, it's a one-time effect. Everyone drinking tea gets some money. And so then I was thinking, I was like, well, is this just like a joke by the designer to kind of include in the game? Like, clearly that wouldn't have something as silly as everyone drinking tea gets money. 
No, I, I, I legitimately think that's what it is. I looked at the big rule book and yep. Nope. Anybody that is currently drinking tea gets money. Right. Which it's, is cool and thematic and fun, but just that the, the, the lack of those dots, which was just a design decision to have them be open, open dots that aren't filled if they don't have them. And then getting rid of those open dots on the ones that are the double-sided confuse the absolute heck out of me, which is so frustrating for a game done by such good draft graphic design for the rest of it. Because literally everybody got one of those cards without the dots. I don't know. Well, well, does this mean I can't load it as a contract? No, you can. It just doesn't have dots. So, But the other ones that don't have any cost just have all empty dots or empty circles. This one doesn't have any circles. It was just, it's just like, I haven't seen something like that just throw me off as much as it did. And it was so frustrating. So frustrating. Well, what's going to happen here now, Jake, is our awesome fans are going to come out forth and say, well, yeah, dummy, you can't play that as a contract. So that's why that doesn't have any dots on it. Right. And they'll be like, ha ha, Jake was right. But anywho, it's just <laughs> it was a really cool game and it was a really poor experience of it. But I think the next time we try, I seriously think this game is really good. And I'm not going to say yeah. better than Glory to Rome, but Different. I think I might say less degenerate than Glory to Rome. It's like flag football versus tackle football. I think it has more varieties of degeneracy is where I'm going with this one. Like the um, the number of pow- weird powers are broader in spectrum than they are in Glory to Rome. Like the Glory to Rome degeneracy is more like the, hey, you get to draw a whole bunch of extra cards or you get to put extra building materials in play. <sighs> I disagree. Whereas this one just had weird stuff in it that you're like, I, I have no idea what circumstance this power would even be useful in. But see, I disagree because I think it's the same. I think it's the same in Glory to Rome. I think it's been a bit since we played it. But Glory to Rome, I think, gets more out of spec with the game mechanisms. Um, And I didn't see that happening here. Like, we didn't have, okay, you have 37 workers because your game rule allows you to break the thing so you can have all these workers. And I think that's because that dot system sort of eliminated. People had less weird powers in play than a typical game of Glory to Rome. And they came into play closer to the end of the game. Right. Right. Completely. So, yeah, I I don't know. I still think that ones in Glory to Rome are pretty degenerate. I don't think these are more degenerate, more weird, but maybe that stands to be thing. I just think it's a it's it's a little more mild, a little more understandable, a little more digestible. Anyway, that's uh, Import Export by Jordan Draper, Jordan Draper Games, published in 2017. You know, we're giving this one a thumbs up. And Jake, where would you put this one on the mogul scale? <laughs> I don't even know. We've played it once. I don't even know if I can give this one a mogul scale. Um, All right. We, we can forestall it. I mean, it, well, clear, clearly it's at least a three on rules and somewhere in yeah, there. Yeah, maybe it's a four. I don't know. We'll see. I think our next experience will be very illuminating in regards to the quality of the play and everything. So what other old game do you want to talk about, man? <laughs> okay. Well, uh, you know, old games that have been recently republished. Let's talk about Age of Steam, Jake. Something we've talked about a lot. And, uh, you know, it's been a minute since we've talked about Age of Steam. So I think it's time for Age of Steam Corner. Do-do-do-do. <laughs> we need a little theme bumper music for that. So I had a little game weekend last weekend. Would have had you over, but you were out of town doing something involving sport ball. It's out of state. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And, uh, but I had a good crowd of people over and we had uh, six people over in the evening and I don't know. The vibe was kind of more didn't have a second table set up and the vibe was a little more. Hey, let's all play something together, which can be challenging. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I saw my copy of Age of Steam sitting there and went, hey, Nick, 
Rust Belt's good at six, right? And he's like, absolutely. It's the best at six. And most of the people had played, but there was a couple that hadn't played it before. So there was a, there was a teach involved with that one. So we uh, we set up our six-player Rust Belt, did the teach. And uh, you know how the uh, there's some variability depending on like what cubes come out in what city? This one was hostile. Man, I love mean, it. So there's different colored cities. And in the game, you're really trying to like build rail, which scores you some points. And you're trying to ship cubes around to other cities that match their color, which scores you a whole bunch of points and earns you money, which then allows you to bid for special powers, which are super important. Wow, that's the shortest Age of Steam explanation ever. (laughs) But what happens is, is that in this case, on the south half of the map, Everything was like a one delivery. So it was like, you know, a bunch of blue stuff, bunch of blue stuff, one city away from blue cities. But then on the top half of the map, everything was spread super far apart. So like Duluth had all the yellow cubes that needed to get shipped up to like Rochester, New York or whatever that is. And vice versa, all the red cubes were on the other side of the map and all the purple cubes were up in Rochester, New York. So how the game normally plays out, there was there was no starting move up in those upper corner on either the northeast or the northwest corner so oh. smash cut to six people all fighting over the southern half of the map i have never seen a map by round three be so convoluted where it was you know we're already doing complex track in round two and three just so people can get anywhere and Gosh, get more than funny. a one run it was so hostile a knife fight in something smaller than a phone book knife fight in a shoebox yeah i mean it's one of those that literally just getting a getting a two run was a major accomplishment in this game it's awesome nick and i both kind of got the same idea at the same time probably being the most experienced stage of steam players in there i managed to basically box out the entire northeastern corner to myself so literally nobody in the entire game could get up to those cities in the northeast corner and nick did more or less the same thing with duluth because so many people were trying to ship cubes on the south side the southern half of the map got completely starved of cubes by halfway through the game. And so right. people are legitimately fighting over that resupply action or whatever to get more cubes out. That action was actually going high in the order because everybody was starving for cubes so bad in the southern half of the map. And Nick and I had like five cubes all sitting up in our <laughs> cities that we were literally the only ones that could touch them. That's so cool. You know, without paying a run of two or three to us just to get them. Because of that, in the last couple rounds of the game, I was making 10 to $15 in income just by people trying to get to my cube. So, like, I was literally making income on everybody else's turn by the end of the game. That's so cool. I would have loved to play. It was a really delightful game. It was one of the most colorful Rust Belt games I've ever played. Ultimately, I thought this was going to be my first ever win at Age of Steam, and freaking Nick picked me by a point. One point. Nick's got to figure it out. He's not too shabby at that game. The only reason he passed me up is he had more money left at the end. That's awesome. I I, I wish Russ Belt at a six four. I've never done it that big. And oh, five. It was it was madness. It was That's really awesome. fun. That's so cool. Jealous. That's Age of Steam by Martin Wallace. That Rust Belt map going all the way back to two thousand two. Although I was playing my twenty twenty Eagle Griffin copy. Weird thing about Age of Steam for me. The main reason I don't bring it to game nights is because I've kind of committed to this small bag lifestyle. And guess what doesn't fit in the small bag? Your big old Age of Steam box. Correct. Maybe I should just bring that alone. I'll just only bring that now that Kirk's coming back again. Maybe we'd, I don't need to bring games. Does Uncle Kirk like playing Age of Steam? No, 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 no. He does not. I don't know if he has. He might like it because it is just a Euro game. 
Yeah, you're, you'll have to sell that point hard. I mean, he definitely has some prejudice against train games. You want to play a worker placement game with some routes on it? As it trains? <laughs> yeah. Area control worker placement game. That's how you sell it. I don't know if he likes area control either, but whatever. He thinks he does. Mm, we'll see. So that sounds great. <laughs> I'm jealous of your play of Age of Steam. I'll start bringing it again. Keeping the train thing chugging along here. Look at that. Mm-hmm. We tried out the other new hotness by... Amabel Holland, um, Iberian Gage, even though it originally came out in 2017, but it was recently republished by Capstone Games in 2021. Part well, this three. Is, this is game three in the Iron Rails series, correct? Iron Rails, correct. And they all look so so sharp on my, my shelf all next to each other with their little numbers counted up. But yeah, this is weird. I've literally played like all the new hotness. This is like, I mean, in our weird corner of the world, but like... This is like pretty hot. Like I could, I still scroll Twitter and I like see people playing it. We're cool, Mark. We're topical. At least I am. (laughs) You're playing weird ass things that no one's played in a long time. (laughs) I am committing sponsorship suicide on a daily basis, Jake. And it's okay. I'm good with that. So Iberian Cage, it's, that's usually, that's usually what I do. This is so weird. I'm loving it. (laughs) Or it's just like a game that everyone knows about that. I'm just like playing a bunch. So I'd be engaged. Let's talk about it. It's a cube rails game. In this case, it's not necessarily cubes. It's actually small, mini choo-choo trains. But it's interesting. It does actually feature cubes. What you're doing in the game is you're investing in these different railroads and then running these railroads with your investment. And what I mean by investment is every time you take an investment in one of these companies, you put a cube of your own there. That indicates they own a share of it. But also every time that we run, the companies will run in a certain order, top to bottom, and for every cube or every share that you own of that company, you will take one action with that company in that order, depending on when you take it. And just that alone kind of explains the weirdness in regards to the game. There's some other stuff going on where you can lease track and uh, there's some destination bonuses, which I've heard from Emma in regards to her other games, that it's kind of something that doesn't really happen very often at high level play. At least that was true with uh, Irish Gage and my guess is it's similar in this. Works out to be a pretty interesting little experience. What were your original thoughts on it? We've played this twice together, or have you only played it once? I have played it two times with you. Me too. We both played together. Wildly positive on it after play one. I've cooled on it to the point where I'm not sure I need to own it after play two. Interesting. I don't dislike it. I'd happily play it. But in two plays, I've seen it very quickly degenerate into a game of Let's try to get two shares in a company and let's try to torch the person that has two shares in the company. I mean, yeah. that, that's more that's or less what thing. both games degenerated into pretty quickly. So let's explain what the plays were. The first one was a three or four player game, three or four. And the second one was five. We maxed it out. Yep. So the first one, we made the mistake. Everybody floated really high and started their company really high, which made it kind of hard to cross invest. So then we carried that thing. It was still a fine gameplay. We really enjoyed it. It was still very fun. Then the second one, we kind of carried that in and we all floated really low. So it was really easy to cross invest. And it dissolved into exactly what you were saying, Mark, where it was. And by half the game, literally every share had been sold. So there was kind of nothing to do. It's like, okay, let's just run these rounds out. Yeah. And see, I'm unsure about what to think. Usually when we have these things, I ask what you think. And then I give my opinion. I really don't know what to think about it. It's captivating enough where I want to play it again. And it's relatively light and pretty easy to grok so i really don't think it's like a pretty big obligation to kind of academically test it out but i don't know i've heard people that i respect really enjoy this one i think it seems to have a little bit more staying power and uh 
broad appeal. I mean, heck, the uh, no pun included people did a video on it and they, they didn't do one on Ride the Rails, for example. It's got a little bit more normie clout, maybe. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if that means it's better or if it's just for whatever reason, Cube Rail Games, this released it better than, than Ride the Rails, for example. Sure. I, I will certainly play it again. I don't I don't mean to demo the faint praise. I've had fun playing it, but I don't know. You know, I mean, I'm trying to figure out where the game actually is because of the fact that, like I said, every game we've played has just kind of been like, hey, I'm trying to get two shares in this company and trying to box other people out from profiting on two shares of the company. And since I own a share in a railroad that somebody else owns, too, I'm just going to purposely lay tragic tracks so that they don't meet their two cities. And that's a point we should probably bring up. Right. One mechanism in the game is that if you don't successfully make a connection to a city on every single turn your stock actually goes down and you lose value on that one. You can purposely hurt a share by laying just garbage track out there. And likewise too, there's probably a strategy around, Hey, I'm going to float high, keep other people from buying shares, but then I'm going to drop the price by laying bad track. And then I I don't know. So there's probably more game than I'm admitting to, but boy, we fell into the same pattern both times. Here's the thing I find interesting. I think this is keeping with the trend of we swap positions. So if we were to have the same conversation on Ride the Rails, I would sound exactly like you did, where I don't think Ride the Rails is a bad game. There's something about games now with the just immense glut of really good games that we know exist. Like we did this mathematically once. We have, I don't know, something like 900 games or 1,000 games amongst the kind of like a few members of the group that we're hanging out with. And if we just filtered all the games that like, two of us at least have rated an eight or better. It's still like 200 games. Yeah. For you sure. know? And so there, there ends up being this thing where it's like, you don't have anything really bad to say about the game. You're sure you don't know all of it, but the last two plays left you thinking, meh, who knows? I'd probably, probably rather play something else. And then it becomes frustrating because it's like, is this me failing the game? Do I have an obligation to academically review games? We're not reviewers. We don't care. So we don't fight through it, but it's, do I owe this game more? Do I not? And it's 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 an interesting kind of like offshoot of just the general popularity, maybe proliferation of games that are pretty good now. Yeah, and I think your comparison Ride the Rails is an excellent point of that. Like I've played it at four and five and thought it was pretty fun. Not the world's greatest game, but pretty fun. You've only played it at three, which is kind of universally reviled as being like why even include it on the box? Yeah, why even include it on the box? It's not good. And your experience wasn't great. But having said that, if I were to bring Ride the Rails to a game night, I don't think we'd play it. I don't think I'd be able to successfully talk people into playing it. Well, it's not even it's, it's not even about talking it in. It's because, you know what, we could definitely play a myriad of other Cube Rail games that are either new that we haven't discovered yet that we'd like to at least put feelers on or ones that we know we like that we haven't played in a while. Right. You know what I mean? Ex- yeah, exactly my point. Like there's so many like GMO, we can play GMO again. Um, like there's so many of these games that exist where it's like, are we beholden as just regular gamers and as reviewers or anything? Cause we're just regular gamers to like give them a second plane. It's just kind of an interesting jumping point. So I feel unsure about it. And that unsureness, I understand why you feel the way you do. And I don't think you're wrong, nor do I even think you're really making even a point. It's just, this is how you feel about something, right? It really doesn't color the game. Yeah. I'm literally going on a vibe. Like I, I I'm a hundred percent positive. I don't fully understand the game, but at the same time, I'm kind of going, eh, I'm not sure. I, to understand it more i don't right. know like i said I, I i from a collection perspective i feel like i needed to own it because i have the other two in the iron rails series but after a couple plays I'm, i don't know if i do 
Yeah, completely. Yeah, and I I feel the same way in reverse about Ride the Rails. And I, I don't know. I'm going to try. It's been, I keep on bringing it. It fits in my small little box, my small little bag. So that's been the main reason I bring it. But I, I want to give it one more pass. But I could totally see myself ending in the same point where you're at, where it's like, I get it. It's fine. Like, I had a good time playing it. I'm never going to say no. But the allure of either other things being new games or pretty good games that we've already played might come through. Exactly. So. Anyway, that's Iberian Gage by Amabel Holland and Capstone Games, originally published in 2017 by Holland Spiel Games and published no, by Winsome. Winsome Games, that's correct. No, this yeah. was this was when Amabel had her, I think, five games with Winsome. Winsome, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then picked up and published as part of the Iron Rails series by Capstone Games. Yep. It's an excellent transition to another Always the Bridesmaid game that I got a chance to play just last night. Interesting how many games I have like that. I need to do an episode on games that are always the bridesmaids that are games that we enjoy, yet somehow never get played. Even though we all kind of go, yeah, it's a good game. And this is definitely one of those. This is Isle of Sky by Alexander Pfister, Alexander Pelican, published by Mayfair in 2015. The redheaded stepsister of the uh, Pfister anthology. Anthology? Yeah, but I would bet of all the Pfister games, I bet it's the biggest seller. (laughs) <laughs> no great western trail you drunk what are you talking about dude i love sky is 20 bucks great western Trail. It's 20 I, bucks and it has normie upside why don't you explain the game to our lovely listeners and i will go on bgg and prove you wrong quickly you, you know you might be right but i i would bet this that they've sold an awful lot more copies of isle of sky than they have mombasa yeah for sure but yeah but that that, that wasn't worth comparing i mean great western trail exists that's fair. I mean, there's no there's no denying Great Western Trails a mega smash, but I think you're also undervaluing how popular Isle of Sky was. True. Isle of Sky is a game that uh, I would describe as being the Carcassonne tile laying mechanism, along with the pricing mechanism of Castles of Mad King Ludwig. Correct. What you're going to do every round is you're trying to build out your tribal lands, very Carcassonne style, and there is a certain number of scoring tiles. There's four scoring tiles each game. And different combinations of those score each round. So like the first round, only tile A is going to score. Then tile B is going to score. Then tile A and C is going to score. Then B and D. And then A, B and D. And B, C and D. You know, so there's basically every tile scores three times over the course of the game. But sometimes they score in combos with each other. You get to price each one of those tiles. Then you go around the table and you can either buy them. And if nobody buys them, then you get to place them yourself into your own land. And that's where a lot of the game is. It's both in the tile laying and also in just that scoring and price, that just that pricing thing. You can price it high if you want nobody to buy it, and then you just pay it for yourself and get to place it in your land. Or if somebody buys it from you, you get your money back that you priced with it and their money, and they get to buy it. So you can kind of look around the table and say, okay, Phil really needs the piece that has two cows on it and a whiskey barrel and a mountain along one side. So I'm going to price that one at a price that's high enough that he'll probably buy, but low enough that I won't get stuck with it. Right. Then you place them and then you score the round and five turns later, you're, you're, what is it, six rounds later, you're done with the game. A couple of interesting twists in this one, Jake. That combination of scoring tiles where multiple scoring tiles score is really neat and um allows you to really drive towards a specific strategy and what you bid for. And you can also predict what things are going to score in terms of how you're going to price. It also has a really interesting catch-up mechanism based into it. So if you're behind after like the third round, the third round, you get a dollar for every person that's in front of you extra in your income. The fourth round, you get $2 extra. 
fifth round, you get $3 extra. And then the fourth round, you get $4 extra. So if you're in third place in a three-player game, you're going to get eight extra dollars that you can use to buy the right tiles or to price your stuff higher. Pretty cool way of handling that. Anyway, because of the way the tiles came out, uh, the scoring tiles, somehow I ended up with all the tiles that were going to score a whole bunch of times all to myself. And I ended up winning by about 30 points. <laughs> it, was, it was amazing. Uh, one of the things we were scoring is how many boats were out there. Another one was how many whiskey barrels. And I somehow ended the first round with a monopoly on both boats and whiskey barrels. And that just turned into a score fest the entire rest of the game. That's awesome. Anyway, forgot how much I liked that game. You know, it played in about an hour. The teach was short, you know, five minutes-ish. Lots of interesting decisions. And um, I think this is a game that gets slept on more than it should. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those ones that I didn't own and I wanted to buy when I first played it. And it's kind of one of those ones that I've always been like, if you play this again, I bet you're going to buy it. And I just never have. So I'd like you to bring it more. I like tile playing games, but Carcassonne bores me. Yeah, no, this is definitely a better game because it, most of the game is in the pricing. Do I price it right. high so nobody buys it? Do I price it low? What do I buy to add to my land to score better? Right. That's where the real interesting part of the game is. Less so, you're only placing a couple tiles out each round, so it, the Carcassonne part of it is smaller. Totally. Okay, so I did look it up. They're closer than I thought. So this is just BGG own stats, so who knows. But it's 23,000 or 26,000-ish. I, I left, I deleted the tab for um, Isle of Sky, and it's like 38,000 for um, Great Western Trail. Sure. Sure. So they, they they are closer, and I did check Mombasa, which is like 13,000, which is way more than I thought. I thought that game yeah, was that's way surprising. more niche. Yeah. And then um, I also did the Broom Service game, which had like somewhere in between, but less than both, but kind of higher, higher teens of thousands. So it's a good game. It, it, I, it I was don't a pretty just... big hit when it came out. Like, I think it was a, like a runner up in the Spiel des Jahres that year or something right. like that, too. I don't or maybe you might even want it. Um, I do wonder about games like Isle of Sky, and it's a perfect example. I'm just used to make this slight little side point that were like really hot for a while and are good games, but are not evergreens and not even just like just shy of evergreens. They're just like just below that, like almost an evergreen tier. Yeah. Where it's like they're good games and you can kind of like figure out as like an artifact to figure out when they started playing games by if they have those games or not. Sure. If you look at someone's collection, and this is just one of those, one of those last little artifacts of uh, 2015. Well, and I think it also suffers from the fact that it's not a cornerstone game. It's mm -hmm. 45 minutes-ish. It's, it, it's a thinky filler. So, you know, it probably gets passed over because of that. You're like, ooh, uh, you know, we're going to sit down and play Isle of Sky. True. You know, there's never Isle of Sky night. I mean, I'd consider like a Zool. I'd actually consider a lot of Evergreen games in that category, though, compared yeah, to the bigger sure. box games. And to your point, it's competing with Azul for table space and time frame because they totally. play in about the same amount of time. But Azul is so much more streamlined than this. Even yeah, though it's no a game. No question. But rules of Isle of Sky were more streamlined than I remember them being. Like, I'm really, these rules are simple. Right. It also has that cool scoring thing, too, where it's like A, A, B, A, C, right? Mm -hmm. Where like each mm -hmm. round, so cool. So cool. Love that. I will make a point of bringing that a little more often because uh, that was a delight. I had fun playing it. Gotcha. Well, that's wonderful. To be on the mogul scale, Jake. I think I'm pretty solid on that one. Absolutely. Yeah, we got to play all of Sky more. That's, that, that's a good one. I like most of Mr. Fister's work. Yeah, as promised. A lot of cool games from times past. I think we left. Actually, in, in hindsight, I don't know that we actually hit a 2009 average, Jake, because 
I was going to talk about a game from 1980, but I'll probably save that for next time. Yes, we always have more than we end up covering, but <laughs> we'll be releasing more. There's just been a lot of not bad personal stuff. We just get busy in the summer and I busy people. And so I think kind of moving forward, we're going down to that hunker mode in the upper Midwest where we play a lot of games and spend a lot of time together and have a lot more free time to discuss our little hobbies. So I think you'll be hearing a lot more from us on the moguls feed. I think we've said that the last four episodes. Hey, I know right. it's been a while, but dude, uh, I was, I was absolutely, <laughs> I was absolutely lying though. Gosh, my summers are so busy. Like we have a lovely family cabin and it's great, but growing up, my friends just like, didn't know who I was on the weekend or in the summer because I'd be up at the cabin all the time. And now my wife's family also has a cabin, so we get to go up to there too. So it's twice the cabin, twice the fun, twice the driving, twice the yeah. tired Jake. Well, and also too, like, I really feel like we've been kind of hitting on all cylinders with playing games lately too. And now that we're getting into the fall and everybody's kind of starting to think more games, it's just, it's so much easier to, because of the fact, Jake, that we do not do reviews. Nobody's sending us piles of games every week that we got to play. We play when we want to, and we play stuff that we want to. So that's kind of dependent on us actually playing games. And now that we're sort of in a much more playing game kind of mode, I got lots of stuff to talk about. I think we only got through half the list of games I want to talk about. So me too. That means we got to record again soon. Absolutely. All right. Well, it was great catching up with you, buddy. And I'm looking forward to playing games soon again. As am I. Hey, been a great night for the gaming moguls. I'm Mark. And I'm Jake. Good night, everybody. This has been the gaming moguls podcast co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at GamingMoguls. Or reach us via email, jake at GamingMoguls.com or mark at GamingMoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.